What can culture do? What can culture do? What is culture? Culture unites us. So thank you, gentlemen, that you hop in. And um, yeah, um, uh, Miss Prince can't be here because she's not feeling so well. So we are continuing our talk over here and we are improvising, of course. But that uh, yeah, is your chance to get into our discussion with your questions right away. So hello once again to Nico Daswani, um, Mostafavi and Matteo Kries. Um, I'm Sarah Burke. So um, I guess maybe we just pick up with the last sentence, uh, the last thing that Catherine Flutz just mentioned. Caring for objects in museums means to keeping them breathed. So what would you say? A object, an object that is breathing What uh, does that mean, and what is our educational task behind it? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> well, there's you know special ways to speak about objects among museum colleagues. So <laughs> this is probably one term that is part of this yes. uh, vocabulary. Um, I think she relates to several qualities that objects can have. On the one hand, they have can have different meanings in different contexts. Um, so it really matters where you, whether you show an object in a, in a clean, white space, decontextualized, um, as, um, with a focus just on its form, or uh, if you show it uh, in a space embedded in, I don't know, film interaction, where you can really touch it, where you can experience it, when, when you can get an idea of its tactile um, qualities and I think this is one aspect uh, where you see how objects can I wouldn't say breathe but change their character um, and another aspect um, that should be mentioned is that um, we all think about how to store and present our collections and the V&A uh, is um, in the midst of a big project to um, create uh, a new storage facility. Some other museums in the past have done this on a smaller scale. We've done it, at finished it two years ago. And there we also thought about how can we create a space where we uh, store and present our collection at the same time yeah. and make a space that is not a static, uh, I think Catherine spoke about a mausoleum, where things are buried for decades, but where they still have something to say and they still have a life and where there's a fluctuation mm. because a collection is in a constant fluctuation. You acquire new things, you give loans, things come in and out. And how can the visitor experience that? Because it's much more interesting to experience that okay. than to look at a static display. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So it's definitely about contextualizing objects Would you no, please? I agree that um, it's very much about the social life of objects. I think a lot of the uh, examples that we saw this afternoon and people talking about it is ready to not only separate the objects and only look at them in terms of one's aesthetic experience, which is important, but also to understand them uh, within a kind of broader, uh, broader situation and broader context which is really this socializing. And I think this also links to 
at the rise of interest in questions of ethnography, for example, and people really understanding the relationship between things and where they're coming from and having a kind of more holistic sense of, of things um, as such. And I think that's why also the, the, the presentation about the material, the tactile condition of things that has been mentioned is also very important in this kind of um, in this kind of context which actually raises the issue of the the, mu- the museum of the future mm. which was um, suggested that the the role of the user will need to be very different because they will have a much more personal relationship also with with the objects and it's their relationship with the object that also produces new kinds of meanings both for the object but also for the person who's who is um, interested in a way in in the objects mm. that means that in the future maybe we don't really curate um a combination or choreography of objects. Maybe we just place them there and let them grow because visitors come in. I'm just <laughs> visioning. Um, because visitors come in, leave their comments and uh, do something out of objects. Could that be also a museum of the future? Is that interesting? I think that could be one one of the manifestations. I don't think that the idea of seriously curated exhibitions is going to go away and I think there is something about the scholarly dimension of certain forms of curation which is important. But I, I think just going back to what Martin, for example, was interested in, it wasn't so much the idea of a kind of casual encounter with things. It was the idea that there was also a deliberateness on the part of individuals who could themselves also play a curatorial role and therefore there would be the possibility of of faster uh, reaction on the part of the storage to the notion of one's own sense of a collection or one's own idea and this is why I think the link to the logistics and distribution centers is important because it won't take that long for objects to be retrieved from the center you don't have to it won't take three years to make an exhibition maybe it's possible to make an exhibition over a period of a few days And I could imagine a situation where there could be the the storage, but there could be spaces adjacent to it where people might have the space for a few days and they could bring together and construct uh, an exhibition which could then be open to the public. So there are, there, there are different forms of curatorial mm-hmm. practice that could emerge, I mean, for example. Mm-hmm. What is interesting is that in the past there has be, have been these two classical formats of showing something to the visitor. There's the temporary exhibition and there's a collection which was also called a permanent exhibition. Mm. You know? And <clears throat> what we see at the moment is that the, the borders between these two formats are open and that there are in so-called permanent exhibi- uh, exhibitions there are like smaller pocket exhibitions or interventions. Mm-hmm. So we start to think about new formats of showing something to the visitor which can also be neither the one nor the other and um, and it's, it's important because you know the, the classical exhibition was always linked to ideas of scenography, of immersion mm-hmm. With, even 10 years ago there was um, virtual reality applications I mean we have this 
um, this set of tools for exhibitions, it's much more difficult to apply this to collections mm. because when you store a collection for a long time, you have certain um, you have much stricter conditions for storage, for climate, for security, um, and you can exhibit an object in a slightly different context for four months for a temporary show, but you can't keep it in that way for 10 or 20 or 30 years. So how to store it and still don't close it away? Mm. Um, and this is still a challenge which a lot of museums are looking at at the moment. So what I see is that this discussion about what is a temporary exhibition was very much dominating the debate about museums in the 1990s and in the 2000s. I think in the last 10 years, the focus have shifted, has shifted on exhibitions, uh, sorry, on collections, which have a long time been seen as even a burden. In the 1990s, there were discussions about collections. Um, do museums still need collections, etc.? So really quite ridiculous collect, uh, discussions. And now they are seen as a treasure again because we see how with digital technologies, with new tools, we can um, rediscover the collection as a, as a huge potential. So I think today every museum who does not have a collection is quite jealous um, to get one, whereas this was different 20 years ago. Thank you. Yeah, just thanks so much. And I, I agree with the, these gentlemen who have a lot more experience than I do in, in museums. But we have a very interesting uh, setup. You know, we, we have this temporary museum, if you want to call it that, in, in Davos, uh, for example, amongst our events, but where we have five days. Um, but And the, the conditions that we have are not uh, optimal. The light, it's, a it's an old Swiss 70s Congress Center. Um, so the acoustics are not very good, the, the, the lighting is not very good, the, the setup is kind of antiquated, but we do have the most influential audience in the world coming through. So that's where we start. We start with that audience and we think, how can an exhibition, and this is where Martin kind of came in as, <clears throat> was the first really museum director who saw the opportunity because um, it, it, it was so much of a leap of the imagination for many of the other museum directors that we work with <clears throat> to think about how to curate something in a space that is so... Uh, uh, you know, difficult to work in for just this amount of time. And of course, I know that in many museums, you know, some of these are two to three years in the making. And for us, we try to have exhibitions that are really responding to what's happening in the world. So we're looking at exhibitions six months before or sometimes four months before. And so it's not always uh, in the capacity of museum staff to be able to, to, to work this way. Um, so it's, it's interesting uh, for us because we start with the audience. You know, and then we start with a certain kind of intention uh, where we, in, in the journey that someone has as a minister, a CEO, or a head of state is going to come through Davos, what is in their mind? What are they dealing with? What, are the, what, what is their journey across Davos? And then within that, how can we then create a space that is meaningful, that is a space of interaction? We almost have to think as a public intervention. We have mm -hmm. to take the artwork and meet people there, while at the same time keeping the artistic integrity of, of, of the intention with which the work was made, or, or of, the, of the curators. And um, we learn a lot, and I think the museums that have worked with us have also, as a result, learned quite a little bit about um, how to think uh, audience first, perhaps, or if, if that, you know, not everybody agrees with this, uh, but also how to, how to um, think about shorter time frames to creating things that have impact. 
I know that uh, Martin was very proud. I don't know if the VNA still has it, but it was very proud of a exhibition uh, called Rapid Response, uh, where that's where the, the 3D printed gun uh, w was exhibited as soon as it was presented. And so these museum objects were uh, really kind of relevant and contemporary. And so those are, those are the kind of ethos that, that we've we've learned. But certainly there's a lot to learn from thinking about the participant or thinking about the museum goer, not in terms of them making all the effort to kind of find, you know, I don't have someone, my participants are not going to take, you know, the, the tube for 45 minutes to go to South Kent to then wait to buy the ticket to then go see that they, they don't have the time, but, but they are very influential and they are keen. So then we have to think about how to, how to um, approach it in a way that, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, the whole session was titled Cultural Activism Rethought. So when you talk about intervention um, and when we think about how to educate a resistant individual, how do we put that in context with the objects that you talk about and that you're um, defining as, a object, as an object or is it a tool for what kind of intention if we are thinking of cultural activism? If, uh, if we connect this to what you just said, um, I think the activism of us as institutions who transmit cultural projects lies in, in the fact that you can either understand your own role as museums as you always, you have certain formats and you have space A, B, C and you fill it with a project three times a year and then you get a routine and you do this for 50 years and I think what we see now here in this forum and, and this is an example what you just mentioned is that um, the cultural work and also the museum work can be understood much more uh, openly mm. as a kind of breathing work that also reacts to opportunities and does not only uh, see the the machine of the museum that has to run like a big theater and you have your calendar, etc. But that you get opportunities of collaboration where you can do a kind of intervention exhibition at a certain forum for a short time, time span. But maybe it's super interesting because, because you get an audience that you would never bring into your museum or you can convey a message to people that would never get this met message otherwise. And I think, you know, to create that... Willing, willingness within a museum to act like that is, is hard work, I can tell you, because it's sometimes more work for every colleague, and we, I respect that very much. Um, it's also rewarding, because you, you get closer to the audience, you get more feedback, but it's, it's more challenging. So mm. um, I, I've not answered your question regarding the object, because mm. I think the the object is is just one thing that we speak about you know it's it's the the physical manifestation but there's so many other um ways of appearance also of design in society it doesn't have to be an object it can be an installation a thought an app mm. a digital um project um so and i think also this understanding that design can be all this um, is something that is different from 30 or 40 years ago when the design discourse and the all definitions of design were very much focused on the object and also on the industry. And today, I 
uh, would have a problem to still define what is an industrially manufactured object and where do craft processes come in, where do digital processes come in. So this old separation between the industrial world and the crafts or digital world is, has, has been completely blurred. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that um, is really important for those people who live, for example, in North America is that um, <clears throat> we don't really have, um, in high school, much connection to um, art history or architectural history. Um, and so part of the business of activism or the, the, f the interest in activism is also a cultural, it's an educational thing. Mm -hmm. And I think we just, that's one of the things that I've always been very critical of in a way that high school education doesn't prepare, doesn't introduce the arts or culture uh, early enough. Mm -hmm. And so you do that in when you go to college, you go to university, but not in high school. I think in Europe, that's very different in many countries, not in all countries. So one part of activism is actually the education, the knowledge that is needed in some ways. That's one issue. I think the other thing is maybe around the importance of how design that's been mentioned, spatial practice has changed our conceptions of what different institutions are and what they could become. So we've seen libraries, somebody was referring to them, change many of them from libraries to becoming media tech and to not just only be the place that is the depository of physical books, but it's actually a place where you interact with media, you go to work with other people. It's a place of interaction. So the MediaTek is already something between a place of exhibition, exchange, visual practice, as well as intellectual practice. So it's not just the classical library in, in that sense. And one could imagine some form of hybrid between the museum mm. and the library, for example, more explicitly, different versions of it, just saying what are the other kind of typologies that we could have. We need those sorts of things in order to cultivate, to instill in the young generation the possibility, like, for example, the MediaTek or the library has done for families in the United States where they have been unable to have their own computers and to have access at home. So this whole thing of how the public institutions become institutions of knowledge mm -hmm. formation is very, very interesting. And to demystify the museum from very high culture to providing more accessibility, this is why I think the point that, that is being made about finding simpler, easier, uh, more enjoyable, more accessible things from earlier on rather than waiting in the queue and going to the VNA as part of a school trip, but actually having intermediary steps to instill those kinds of interests locally in one's neighborhood. I think these kinds of things are very interesting, to, to like the way that the branch library used to work or works. Why can't we have like branch galleries or exactly. branch museums in a way? I could see some versions of those being very important for the kind of political engagement and activism that you're talking about. Mm. And uh, often, I mean, these are reach out projects then. Are you thinking of Vitra goes neighborhood? You know, because we're bringing, we yeah, 
And if you think about the question of center and periphery, what is important? Well, I have to say, we are at the periphery mm. <laughs> yes. because we are yeah. um, not in Berlin. Um, we are close mm -hmm. to Basel, um, mm. in, which is a Swiss town, but we're on the German side. So we're at the periphery of Basel, mm. but also at the periphery of Germany. I always say that we're in the heart of Europe, really in the center. Yes, are. <laughs> we are one kilometer away from the French border and 500 meters away from the Swiss border. So mm. it's an incredible location for different audiences it's a very rich uh, part of Germany and Switzerland um, of course so you know it's difficult for us to find these problematic zones in that region because okay. there's few but there's one um, between the um, neighborhood where we are and Basel which is it's, 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 it's an area of the city of Weil am Rhein so what we do since two years We collaborate with the city of Weil am Rhein and we do workshops for people that <clears throat> are in a certain youth center, mostly um, people with either a refugee or migrant background, mm -hmm. and we do design workshops there because they would never come to our museum's campus. Mm -hmm. They see it as a site of perfection, it's intimidating, it's high culture, it's expensive for them. So that's why we just say we go there. So we send... Uh, our workshop uh, experts, our educators mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. and they develop things. Sometimes they take them on an excursion to our museums, and sometimes not. And so that's what we started to do in order to also get away from that perfect and neat uh, world of architecture and design that, that we've created. And just to, um, to add something to what has been, been said regarding the This outreach of objects, I think it's also, it's on the one hand important for education, but it's also existential to, to bring these, um, this knowledge to people because I think otherwise it will be difficult for us to, to survive on, on the planet, which sounds very, um, sounds very pathetic. But if we don't manage to inform people about the background of consumption of objects, what is an ecological footprint mm. of, a, of a consumption object, how, is clo how, how are clothes manufactured today, mm. um, what is happening yes. to data. These are all things that people can learn in a design museum. They cannot learn it anywhere else. They can get it maybe from the internet, but maybe it's wrong there. So I think design museums are really one of the few reliable institutions that can tell people um, uh, reliable information about the background and the context of the things they consume and they are surrounded by. And I think this is so important and I think it's not... It's Sometimes I'm astonished that this term of activism today is mm. so much discussed in the museum world, but if we look at the political uh, situation in which we are today with governments popping up which are extreme right which with um, the refugee issues with sustainability and, and you name it I think it's quite logical that all these themes of the social relevance of design are reappearing and they have been discussed in the 1960s and early 70s for a certain time but then in the 1980s and, and 90s this has not been a big issue in design museums there have been books by Ivan Illich and Uh, Alvin Toffler and so on, who have written about that, but it has not become 
a larger movement that reached the cultural institutions. And I think now it's there again. Mm. But one thing that's also worth maybe underscoring is because we use the word objects yes. uh, quite a lot. And I think that, that part of it is also to really underscore or reinforce the importance of the interrelationship between all, all these different forms of engagement and aesthetic experience. I think it's not just the object, it's that there is, there is how do you construct greater possibilities for, for all of us being more sensitive to, towards aesthetic experience. And so that kind of sensibility is very hard to realize, at least as someone who's involved with architecture. I know that there is very little interest in a way in the discussion of architecture as an aesthetic experience. It's become very much a subjective, um, a sub a subjective kind of opinion that people have as opposed to really a sort of systematic set of discourses where one can really review and discuss variations in aesthetic experience. So people just talk about what they like in architecture as opposed to the importance of, of that aesthetic experience. And I feel that that's also something that's constructed. It's not just something which is intuitive or God-given. You know, one needs, to, one needs to in some ways work on that. And in contemporary society, this notion of aesthetic experience is something that is not part of our high school education or things like this, which I, is, is really important, you know. Mm -hmm. so. I was just going to add that you know, as we think about objects and, and the relationship between uh, the view and the object, but of course the object is part of a context, a very given context in which the person is. And we see a, a big rise in people wanting to have a deep immersive experiences. We see this all the time. We do this in our events and there is a desire to be in places where you either are not multitasking, uh, you're disconnected, but very deeply connected. Um, And so I think it's important for us to be thinking about, uh, spatially, uh, more, a little bit more like architects, you know, what is the ambiance that we're creating in which this exchange that you might have with an object or someone else, uh, so, and, and it's some, some of the least sexy stuff that you have to think about, you know, the access and uh, the lighting and how people are going to come in and out, these small things that really make uh, the context to how you experience an object, how you experience uh, 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 a very genuine um, artistic expression and, and ambiance is it's, it's hard I mean you go to the VNA because it has great exhibitions but perhaps you go there for, for other things because it it, it, con it connotes different kinds of images I mean for example you think of the um, the reading room at the um, the welcome collection in London and, and people will go and just hang out and have coffee and tea and it's beautiful read They just it's just about being in a space that feels inspiring And then that is then going to draw people into the collection of, of what they do. So we can't, we, we, we cannot remove the object and the aesthetics of it with the with the exact context in which the audience member is going to be experiencing that. Mm. It sounds obvious. It sounds obvious, but I, it, I don't think it, it's necessarily yes. always in the thinking. <coughs> I'd like to open up the one one comments questions from your side. Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Hello. I would ask you a question about, okay, it's very important the education program from museums, uh, especially uh, in the places where it's not afford. My question for perhaps for everybody, 
uh, with the e-learning and with the uh, 4, <laughs> 4.0 situation in museum uh, is the possibility to bring the education program or to bring the museum and collections uh, everywhere else. Uh, how do you think you can do it without to lose the important uh, experience to be at the place and to experience, such as uh, Marcel Duchamp proposed with his work, I interact direct with the object? I don't really think that um, if you construct interest, if you construct um, the possibility of gaining knowledge, that this is going to stop people from going to the museum. I think it actually encourages people to go to the museum. Now we, have, we see a lot of emphasis on online education and online learning. And I don't know how many museums are in that space. I think this is, this is the greatest moment in the past 50 years for understanding the relationship between virtual and physical space, you know. And, and I think that, that we don't know enough about this interrelationship. I actually feel that we need to study more this connection between the physical and the virtual, vice versa. What's the impact between them? But many universities are um, investing in online education, And I think many of these programs are very successful. We have one on the on design imagination, which had over 100,000 people register for this course on design imagination. And I think that, that that means that there is a massive group of people out there who are interested in in design, in architecture, and so on. And there are some very good courses. Some of them... Uh, made very simply, but they do go to different buildings or to museums. I think this kind of experience is actually very important, even more than in universities when it's just with slide images. When the speaker goes to Berlin and walks around and you can see, uh, I don't know, uh, different kind of uh, museums and explaining this kind of thing. I think this will actually generate interest it's like the tv programs about cooking or about travel that entices people to travel to those places so i think we need more of this idea of communicating and having um, information be available but this is something that even universities still don't know how to make the best connection between physical and virtual and and the next thing is actually when you have virtual when you have online education How will it affect the museum? How will it affect the academy? How will the university be different when you can do so much of your teaching, for example, online? Then the university, the academy, becomes more about participation, interaction, rather than the static relationship between the professor and the student, for example. So this is very exciting how these transformations are actually going to change both the educational establishments but also... Uh, universities, you know, in the, in the, I mean, also the the museums in the future. So, uh, 
If there are no other questions, I, because I feel a bit, I've been a little bit between another fascinating. Yes. <laughs> um, well, this uh, point about um, uh, the potential of a design museum um, explaining, uh, let's say, on, on a deeper level where, where design traditions are coming from, I thought this was a very interesting point from Herr Kries. And it immediately made me think, okay, well, the, the role of a design museum or institute is very different than that of, let's say, an art, perhaps, uh, museum. And um, my question would be, is this, can this resist uh, capitalist consumerism? I know this is a, a huge sort of a point, but is it a problem of design? Because for, I think, many people in society that don't deal with design in their, in their work, um, It feels like a luxury experience to, to visit most of the design museums. I'm not going like, to mention specific ones, rather than that it's kind of a commentary on where, where, where are we coming from since uh, industrialization. So is it that there are not enough design museums, um, or should they change um, their focus, um, or is it a problem of design? Well, I guess I... I should answer a little bit. <laughs> It's a very big question. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I got all aspects uh, right, but um, um, who, where, where to start? Um, I think um, well, to, to start with a very easy point, I think uh, there are surprisingly few design museums, in fact. Um, given the, the importance that design has within society, the impact, the consequences of what designers do to us all, um, it's still surprising how few there are. And, and there's few who are really work, are able to work, given their budget and their staff and their spaces, who are able to work on a similar level of perception like major art museums. So there's really few. If you think about European um, uh, museums, I would say there's maybe five or six that you could mention, and, and that's not enough. It's ridiculous, and um, that's why I very often, when I speak to people from the political sector, I'm trying to convince them that it would be very important to um, support the foundation of more institutions that can do this work, because it is um, at the end of the day, it's an investment into education um, and into knowledge about um, the world that everybody is concerned with. And the, I think a problem of that is that in the past, um, design institutions have very often been seen as marketing institutions. You know, you've found a new design museum, or you, you, you've, you, know, you say you want to be a capital of design because you hope that this has an economical impact and that the so-called creative industries are starting to boom, and that's design, you know, and that's, that's design policy, is, is um, supporting economy. And especially in Germany, this has, been, has had a very long tradition, um, and that has supported the misunderstanding that design is mainly about marketing and economy. And of course, this is not wrong. Of course it's about economy, but it's about much more. And I think this... What is much more um, is, is getting very complex and it's not as easy as just putting a, a nice, beautiful object on a podium, but then you have to start to explain. And so I hope that this whole debate about design at the moment 
about the social um, uh, responsibilities of designers, etc., will also reach the political sector and lead to new institutions that are able to deal with design more critically. And that doesn't mean that there cannot be a wonderful retrospective about uh, Charles Eames or Werner Panton or Marcel Breuer in the future. Of course, these are important personalities like Marcel Duchamp and, and Magritte and other people in the fine arts. That's all part of the work we have to do, and it's part of the heritage. But um, to, to keep a relevance of design museums and to work against that misunderstanding that at the end we try to promote uh, consumption and the production of new consumer objects, we need institutions that are critical and we need more because the few that we have are not enough. Yeah, thank you very much, um, moderator. I would like to, not rewinding um, to the past, but rather a little bit forwarding, um, taking a rare opportunity of a dean of GSD and a scholar from um, World Economic Forum and a museum for future design. Um, if we picture um, that when the millennium grow up and when the um, technology free majority of people away from the labor force, so they will have more free time. And universal income um, is currently quite heavily debated here in Europe and some experimental already being implemented. So that means actually in the future, not immediately long future, but really near future, we might have a very, very different um, economy of cultural production, cultural circulation, preservation, presentation, communication, and everything. Another fact, just to respond to um, Professor Mustafadi's um, uh, uh, comment, is actually the um, generation here in Europe, they're pretty much, um, they dream to be artists, writers, philosophers, filmmakers. Um, they don't really get themselves into the labor-intensive work anymore. They don't even plan that way. Um, so I'm just wondering, for, for this very much future-oriented uh, tendencies, more people, more time, more demands for culture, and at the same time for the young millennials, which actually one of the recent speech by Patrick uh, Schumacher, um, he mentioned about the future housing, uh, which tends to be much smaller than today. And uh, they will turn the society as their common living room, um, so, so the whole possession, idea of possession of art and culture object will be entirely transformed in the next 10, 15 years. So then for your you know, um, research uh, and observation, what will be your uh, predictions about the future, the best optimistic way, um, transformation direction of economy, of culture production and circulation? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Sounds like something for the World Economic <laughs> Forum. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I'm interested in your answer. Thanks a lot. Um, you know, it, it's at the World Economic Forum. It's it's one. Of the, it's probably the biggest question right now. Um, not not as much. Not only, of course, to the cultural production, but this fourth industrial revolution, which is a term that our, our chairman has been has been talking a lot about. As as really this fourth. Someone mentioned 4.0. This this fourth era. If you look at the various waves of industrialization. And that we really do not have the tools yet to figure out 
uh, even with uh, provisions, where we're going to be in 10 years because the, the, the speed of change has been so fast. It's been faster than any other decade in the past in terms of what's happened just in the last 10 years. Um, we come up, the forum comes out with a report every year, uh, the Future of Jobs report. And what's interesting to see is that year on year, the scale of creativity and um, critical thinking go up and up and up and up. And I think this year, creativity was third and uh, critical thinking was first. And so it goes all the way back to educational models, how if indeed uh, there is less work, if there is more displacement, uh, how, do we, how do we start to deal with the kind of educational models that prepare us for the future? I think, I don't know that anybody has a clear answer, just, um, you know, just the last couple of years have confounded people when you look at political movements, for example, which you could argue are a direct result of the, the displacement uh, of jobs, the economic instability, have created waves of nationalism and populism. Uh, so we're just at the beginning of grasping these issues. But it is interesting that, uh, I, I think, that in the Future of Jobs report, which is a, a very broad survey that asks CEOs from around the world the kinds of things that they're looking for in their outlook, critical thinking, creativity, are, are, are potentially, as we imagine it, some of these key skills for the future. So for us as a field, this potentially creates all kinds of opportunities. But um, it's, it's a, a scary and exciting time. Uh, at the same, uh, you know, in, in equal measure right now. Maybe one quick um, sort of reaction, because I think that there is a, there is a sort of Marxist uh, perspective that's been waiting for a long time for people to not have to work, and then the concept that leisure time will become the most important. So tell me what kind of leisure. Um, and I'm I'm sort of a little bit now, as I get older, more skeptical about the the potential reality of like no work and a lot of leisure for all of us. I think that that we are in a kind of transition state where, for example, the nature of workplace is changing or could potentially change. So over the last four or five years, we've spent a lot of time looking at the workplace. And that means um, not only spaces of industrial production, but also offices and where we work and all these kinds of things. And if you think about it, um, this is something that even um, design companies like the furniture companies, they're interested in that interrelationship between the interior and the furniture and the liminality of that kind of connection. I mean, for, for an organization like Vitra, I think that this is a very important point of mediation between like the place of work and how what are the tools what are the instruments what are the devices that we have that we surround ourselves with so i'm just wondering whether we wouldn't need to spend more time thinking not about there is no work and work is pure labor and in labor is domination and let's look for for um, leisure but that there would be, for example, the idea of labor as a form of pleasure. Is it possible to create conditions within the workplace where work will also be a pleasurable experience? So these hybrid situations rather than work as domination and leisure as, as liberation in some way. And I think that that's like, again, that's a design issue how, what kind of environment do we have? What kind of cities do we have? We don't discuss so much about our cities as spatial locations that give us pleasure, but there are certain cities that we prefer to be in than others, which do provide pleasure. 
uh, for us. So I think we need to be more material and spatial and concrete in terms of the conditions. Uh, and, and, you know, I think sometimes the utopian kind of ideas, they create abstractions which are harder to ground in very specific kinds of situations. So I think it would be good to discuss essentially this kind of middle ground until we get to where you where you think we're going to go in the next 10 or 15 years i think we have work to do and let's let's work together on that interim period on the kind of the space in between where we're going and where we are you know i think there's a beautiful quote that came to my mind by charles eames which is take your pleasure seriously so you know the designers like the eameses they never made a difference between play and having fun and designing things. And I think even if it should happen that our leisure time um, increases, um, it will probably increase the outcome of um, ideas and of, of projects, of work. So I think um, this discussion about increasing leisure time is based on a very traditional understanding of what is leisure and what is work. And we see that this understanding is completely um, uh, opening at the moment. But this is not the quote I wanted to mention. It just came to my mind when I listened to you. The other one was referring to the question of the future that you raised. Um, of course, with a lot of exhibitions, we discuss what can this exhibition say about the future of something, I don't know, of digitalization, mm -hmm. of the interior, etc. At the end, we always come back to something that, that the, the science fiction author William Gibson once said, who said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed mm. so you know a lot of puzzle pieces of what will happen in 10 years or be our reality are already here and that's what we can show so i like to look at these pieces and we can show this in a museum rather than speculating too far ahead of course we have to give perspectives but i, th I really agree with gibson that looking at the present and at the real is is the way to speak about the future also for design museum mm -hmm. thank you and if this not would be cultural activism then i don't know okay thank you very much nico moisen matteo for hopping in and thank you for your interest thank you and we're going back to the main stage thank you